Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Thank you for joining Kim and I today on the wonderful world of wine. How are you, Kim? I'm doing all right, Mark. How about yourself? Everything is great. Thank you. And we're so glad to have a very special guest today. Mandy Neglich is here. She is the author of How to Taste, a guide to discovering flavor and savoring life. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to talk to you today and let the listeners hear all about yourself. First, Mandy, can you tell our listeners about yourself and how you got interested or this passion for tasting? Definitely. All of my tasting experience really traces back to a passion that I had for beer. And in 2016, I got a gold medal at the National Homebrew Competition, kind of out of nowhere. I was never part of a club. I never had entered a competition before. So it was very exciting. And it also got me a little bit of attention because people were just like, who is this woman uh, who won out of nowhere? You know, a gold medal is there's, I think, five 5,000-ish entries to the National Homebrew Competition. So it's a, a big win for me. And that I got attention from the Cicerone organization, which is a certification body that uh, acts very similar in the way that the Quartermaster Sommeliers does for wine. Uh, this is focused on beer. So we're doing things like brewing, beer styles. Uh, there's a lot of tasting exams in the certification program. And I went ahead and got through to the advanced level of Cicerone, which is the third step, the third certification for the fourth one master, I decided to try for that exam and you have to get certified. There's a course called a Roxa that certifies beer tasters. And when I took that course, I realized I was so much more passionate about all of the flavor compounds and the way that our senses scientifically work than I was about studying all the beer content for the Master Cicerone. So really that Aroxa certification class, which I talk a little bit about in the book, set me on this journey to start to talk to tasters of all different kinds, really studying alongside scientists and learning from them about how we can kind of be the masters of our own senses and really shape our personal taste world. And I got really excited about that. Through beer, now have my certifications in things like spirits, cider, cheese, and just a general taster certification as well. So beer to the wider tasting um, environment was my journey. Well, it's going to be hard to keep you and Kim off the beer subject, but I'm going to, I'm going to really push wine today, Kim. I so. am so chomping at the bit to talk about beer right now. Well, let's, let's talk wine first. The great so, world of fermentation, you know, they're, all, they're right. all related a little. So Mandy, many times in the book, whether you talk in wine, beer, chocolate, or cheese tasting, you mentioned, uh, quote, we spend our lives eating and drinking without ever dedicating thought to what we're actually taste. The book really made me think of, of how to enjoy and, and learn how to taste better and give better wine reviews for myself. So what was your overall goal when you were writing the book? I really wanted to share with people, you know, there's so many of these specialty books, how to taste whiskey, how to taste tea, how to taste honey, things like that. And I think we kind of look at those resources as for people who are quote unquote, like geeking out or specializing in something or becoming a blank nerd, a cheese nerd, a wine nerd. And I really wanted to provide something that was just introducing people to the power that our senses have, how 
taste really affects our memory, our overall happiness. Thinking about tasting um, is really a great exercise for your brain. And there was no resource out there that kind of collected all this knowledge that I had gained. And I wanted to put it out there for people who just generally enjoy what they eat and drink and want to get a little bit more of a colorful experience through their senses in life. So that's really, I wanted it to be about taking hold of like the power of your senses and how you can use them day to day rather than focusing on the medium that you're tasting. Yeah, I love how broad your discussion is of not just the different things that we can taste and that we can focus on, but also how you tie that to experience and memory and meaning, sort of how we tie all of the flavors and the aromas and things that we experience in our lives and how that really makes our lives richer. Definitely. And I think as I was practicing tasting for all these different exams and things like that, one thing that I noticed is it wasn't just my sense of taste or my vocabulary for explaining what I was sensing that expanded, but also I started noticing all of the smells in my environment mm. around me and definitely feeling much more of like a sense of grounding in the places that I was. I noticed I could kind of pick up on how different trees and forests smelled or being at the seaside versus a candle that smells like being at the seaside and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I really did just like open up my world so much. And I think it's something that people don't know is an ability that they have too. Mm -hmm. It's almost like viewing it like an art form. Like I have friends who are artists and painters and they have such a different view of color and landscape and light and things like that. And this feels the way that you write about your senses of smell and taste seems very similar to that. You know, it's it's a different way of experiencing the world, but it really does sort of open up all of these other ways of looking at all the places that you can go, whether it's your own environment or someplace new. Definitely. And to your point about it being like related to art, no one would ever say you have to be in a specialized field or a specialist to go observe art in a museum or to listen mm -hmm. and enjoy music. But for some reason, people are so intimidated to say, oh, I want to think about what I'm tasting or appreciate taste or really kind of um, meditate on this taste that I'm sensing. I think it's very intimidating for people to kind of call out their tasting notes and things like that. Whereas people have no problem listening to a new song and saying, oh, I like that or I don't like that or this reminds me of this song. In the wine world and in your book, you were talking about the five basic things for tasting, sweetness, umami, bitterness, salt, and sour. All other things you say that we taste the flavors. Can you relate that to our listeners when it comes to wine tasting and give some little tips about that? Definitely. The best exercise to really display this is trying to take a sip of wine, you know, totally plugging your nose, take a sip of wine, hold it in your mouth and see what you taste and then release your nose and see how much more complex and interesting the flavor is. When you think of something like an orange, really what it tastes like, to your point, those five basic tastes it tastes sour, a little bit sweet, and a little bit bitter if you have some of the pith of the orange. All of those other kind of citrus notes or the floralness you might get or that even that little bit of waxiness that can come from a rind are all flavors that we're getting from our aroma. So the aroma and taste come together to really create flavor. And also we're getting other inputs as far as flavor from like our touching senses. So just the way that sourness feels in your mouth is also another sense that kind of builds into flavor. So all of those come together to create flavor. So when you're thinking of wine, you can kind of break down the aroma and what you smelled and how that matches what you feel on your palate. But it's not really that's a taste of wine. It's all the flavors coming together from multiple senses. So you talk a lot about texture, I think, to 
more of a degree than I've heard other wine writers talk about the texture of a wine above and beyond just tannins. Like we, when we tend to talk about texture, we tend to just focus in on tannins. But you go to a lot more depth about what a wine feels like in your mouth beyond just, you know, red wine sort of having that drying sort of feeling. And I guess I was curious to like, what made you focus in on some of the more interesting aspects of what a wine feels like in your mouth as opposed to just tastes like in your mouth? I think one reason is just that I was so fascinated by how sensitive our palates and tongues and all of the feeling mechanisms in our mouth are. They're so sensitive that we can feel the grits of something that's like the tenth of the size of a grain of sand. So tinier than anything we could see in our eyes you know, with our eyes. And we have that term mouth feel that sometimes people kind of roll their eyes at and they're like, oh, can't you not be so jargony? But um, I think it's really amazing what our mouth can feel, you know, that little bit of grit that you get in something like a pudding that doesn't look like it has a texture, um, but then you have it, the grittiness in your mouth. That's a totally different experience than what you were expecting from your eyes. And I think that little bit of weightiness on your palate that comes from different wines is something that is both really interesting just to observe the fact that we can feel that different kind of heaviness of a liquid. And then beyond that, it also really affects what you're pairing with food wise, I feel when you have something really light and almost like watery in the mouth feel it just it refreshes a little different, it feels a little different than something that's a little bit weightier and heavier on your palate that might feel kind of luxe and smooth and palate coating. So I think that's something else that I found really interesting when you think about starting to pair foods, not necessarily just based on taste, but pair it with a drink based on the full sensory experience you're getting. Also, I'm a huge sparkling wine fan. So the different kinds of like that rough and rocky soda pop bubble versus like a very fine mineral water bubble, I think is a really big differentiating factor in wines for me. And people might not think of that first. So yeah, that's a hard one to kind of get across to people that, uh, (laughs) you know, different types of sparkling wine actually do have different bubbles and a different feeling in your mouth. Definitely. It's something that has those kind of like more minerals going and has that really fine bubble just, yeah, it's a totally different drinking experience Mm -hmm. than something that's like a more American sparkling wine that has just that really, I always think it's almost like LaCroix, like that really rough bubble in your mouth. <laughs> like soda bubbles. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm really in trouble because Kim is the Uh-oh. bubbly queen <laughs> and into beer. So you two are just- It's because uh, so I much. like bubbles, apparently. Anything that's carbonated, I'm like, bring it on. So Mandy, talk about a super taster. You were saying in the book, you are a super taster. What is it? How were you tested? And I've seen some stats that say like 30% of the population are non-tasters and females are better tasters than men. So can you just talk a little bit about super tasters? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you hear the term super taster and you think that people are endowed with these powers where they can pick out specific tasting notes or really understand the complexity and flavor. But really what the term super taster is, is just tied to a genetic marker that is for tasting bitterness. So super tasters have two alleles where they can taste specific bitter compounds and they taste them very intensely. Non-tasters have two alleles for not tasting those bitter compounds. So basically it just means, it doesn't mean you're not tasting a taster, you can't enjoy foods or taste foods at all. It just means you can't taste bitterness as strongly as other people. So often the non-tasters I meet are the ones who are the most adventurous eaters. They're not very picky. They don't have that intense reaction to something that they might not find very pleasant. And then obviously just your plain tasters have one allele of each. They can get that bitterness, but it's not something 
super intense or offensive to them. And I actually interviewed the scientist in the book who coined the term super taster. And she says she wishes she came up with some other term for it because mm -hmm. people think it's this end all be all. If you're not a super taster, you have no hope of tasting things. And she herself is a non-taster. It doesn't make you any better at being in the food world or yeah, tasting things or being good at describing them at all. It's just this really a genetic marker. It also tends though that people who are super tasters have more taste buds on their tongues. So because of the way our taste buds are built into the fabric of our tongue, I guess you could say they're also surrounded by kind of a net of um, touch receptors. So they also, super tasters, because they have more taste buds, which means they also have more touch receptors, they tend to feel the feelings of flavor more as well. So things like the zestiness of a ginger or the spice of capsaicin and things like that. So overall, they're just getting a lot more intense signals. They, you know, they have no superpowers other than tasting bitterness, I guess. That may be one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of super tasters <laughs> and non-tasters. And I think that that is great for our listeners because it really does sort of clear up this, like you said, the name, you know, you can take all sorts of definitions from super. It's like, whoa, mm -hmm. what does a super taster actually mean? So thank you. That was great. I saw a lot of scientific tests about that. Like you mentioned the testing your tongue. I also saw something where people were getting MRIs to see in tasting wine oh, to yeah, see what part scans, of their brains right? they're using. Have mm -hmm. you ever gone to that extent, Mandy? So I did. I forgot you that you had a second part of your question. I did get tested just like there's this PTC test, which is just on a piece of paper that you put on your palate to see how intense the bitterness is. So I did have that test, which I tested as a super taster, but it's not super exact. So I did go ahead and get my genetic testing for it just to make sure I had those two alleles, which I do. So genetically, I'm a super taster. And then as far as going into an MRI, I mean, that I wish that would be amazing. I love all of the studies about how quickly our brains change when we start focusing on tasting. One of the studies I really drill down into in the book is showing beginning wine students, they looked at their olfactory bulb size from week to week, uh, learning about wine course, and it actually changes in size a noticeable amount just over a few weeks. So it just shows how malleable our brain brains are and how important these senses are to our brains. Your brain is literally growing. The olfactory bulb where we process scent information literally grows very quickly when we start focusing on it because it's something that's so necessary to our survival as a human, but just a sense we tend not to use anymore. So our olfactory bulbs sit quite small in the brain, smaller than they would be if we were back living out in the plains and on the forest instead of in our apartment buildings. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at commonwealthwineschool.com. We are supported by Franklin Public Radio, and today we have special guest Mandy Neglich, and her website is Drinks with Mandy and How to Taste Book. Dot com. So Mandy, you were just talking about our olfactory bulbs and our brains and how when we learn to taste wine or in a, a wine tasting environment that it actually changes. Does it change the size of our olfactory bulbs in our brain? Is that what happens? Yeah, they, they grow noticeably. I wish I had the exact study in front of me. I can't remember exactly what percentage, but it was, I want to say something around 20 to 30% in there. So a very noticeable mm -hmm. growth in that section of the brain. And you talk a lot in your book and in your interviews about scent and memory as well and how those are so connected. And it really is this fascinating combination of things that go on in our brain and these connections that our brains make between all of our senses and then our memories and our experience as well. Can you 
talk a little bit to some of the research that you've done on that end of things? Yes. I mean, it's also, it's a tie to our memory, definitely, but also just our overall health, I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reporting this book as COVID was mm. not quite under control yet. And um, a lot of the early research scientists I was talking to said people who had more milder cases of COVID, they were noticing happened to have these larger olfactory bulbs too. A lot of scientists also said that one of the earliest signs of dementia, probably the earliest sign is the beginning of smell loss and not recognizing what you're smelling. But we don't really test for that in you know our yearly physical. It can take years of you having minor smell loss before you actually notice, oh, my coffee doesn't smell like anything to me anymore. By the time you're at that state, there you'll have other signs of dementia before you really notice that you're, no, you're losing out on your sense of smell. So a lot of these scientists are looking to add that to our physical somehow, either via scratch scratch cards, just smelling, you know, the five compounds every year and saying, how strong do these smell to you? Can you identify them? And we'd start to be able to trace some of these cognitive issues a lot further back and catch things a lot earlier on. So that's one way it's tied to memory, but also it's just a different way of remembering things. We were talking about that olfactory bulb and that is really tied to our emotional memory. I think people have heard of the Proustian effect where you have a certain smell, he has a madeleine dipped in tea, and it all of a sudden you feel this flood of emotion. You can't necessarily put your finger on where those memories are coming from always, but you, it's a very emotional feeling rather than something like when you listen to music, that's a little bit more tied in our memory to where we physically are. So you might hear a song and say, oh, I remember being in the car. And you kind of knew you were happy. You know, maybe you remember being on a road trip, singing it with your friends. You knew you were happy, but it's not that same emotional tie. So things like the way your wedding day smelled, if you had a specific flower that had a very strong scent, you know, you might be able to transport yourself back to not just those memories, but also the real feelings you were having on that day, which is just a little different than the other sensory inputs we have. Tim so has cool. this memory thing that bugs me, Mandy. It's She always says certain things remind her of bobby head dolls. <laughs> Britannomyces smells like a new Barbie to me. Okay, there you go. I love that. <laughs> That plasticky sort of smell it reminds me of new dolls. Yeah. And that's Mark, like, I Mark, mean, Mark never had we, a new Barbie. So yeah, he obviously yeah. can't, can't relate. <laughs> and it's like, we can never really fully inhabit each other's scent worlds, right? right? Like you said, that's that first tie that you have. That's the memory it goes back to. But even things with our genes, there's some sense that are the compounds are tied to a specific gene that you either have it or you don't. So beta ionone is one. If you can smell violets, you have the gene for smelling beta ionone. And if they smell like nothing to you, you just don't have the gene. And we would never know unless we are genetically tested for it. You know, no one is asking, oh, what does your aviation cocktail taste like to you? Can you taste the violet liqueur? Are you sure? Does it just taste like gin? We just kind of exist all around each other, not really knowing our individual taste worlds or looking into them very much. Is this the same thing with cilantro? And some people love it and some people think it tastes like soap. Cilantro is a little harder because the mechanism <laughs> is um, self-reported, right? So did, I just, items did cool. I just open a can of worms? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's um, people, you know, people hear this thing about cilantro. So they're like, oh yeah, I'm one of the people who says it tastes soapy. Whereas with beta ionone, you can puff it in someone's face. And if they don't notice you puff something in their face, uh, you know, they don't have the gene. With cilantro, you can be like, oh, I do think this tastes kind mm. of soapy. I guess I have those weird genes, you know? So um, self-reporting is always a lot harder than just not being able to smell something. That's very easy to tie directly to something. You can't, you can't fake it. <laughs> I never knew the violet thing. That's interesting. You taught me something. Yeah. It's about 30% of people. So one in three. 
Wow. That's a lot of people. Yeah. You can live your whole life not smelling violets and be very happy though. So I do know it's a, a marker of some wines that people miss out on um, if you're blind tasting. Mm-hmm. You can't smell beta ionone, but um, other than that, very happily. <laughs> cool. Mandy, I want to talk about, in the book, you were talking about the seven-step tasting procedure that you came up with. The first step I thought was excellent to, to draw to people's attention. It was the setting of tasting. And I've seen a lot of things, Kim and I joke a lot about, we see things in the wine world, good and bad. So I see a lot of good and bad about settings when tasting wine. I would think your point was to have an ideal tasting of wine, you have to have a set environment where it's uh, no real noise, it's no real outside smells and stuff like that. But I I just saw some research, I think it was um, in Rioja, where they said that an energetic environment, it proved higher for tasting. So I'm wondering, is there a separation between professional way we want to taste for environment and casual tasting? Yeah. So when you say proved higher, it means they rated them as they enjoyed them more or that they could could describe them better or blind taste them better. They said they enjoyed tasting in, in an energetic environment. I don't know if that means they really detected anything or they just, I would assume it's just like a casual, it's hard to interpret that type of stuff, but it seemed <laughs> to go opposite of a calm environment type of stuff. Right. Yeah. And that actually aligns well with a lot of the other research. For example, I talk about in the book that study of different musics when you're drinking something, right? So it's the energy can be high and you can listen to something like jazz music, which again, to to that, it has this vague effect that people rate things they enjoy what they're eating and drinking more. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on, but the ratings are consistently higher. It's when you cross a threshold of things being very loud or very unfamiliar. For example, if you're eating something that's not familiar to you while listening to hip hop music with like a very strong bass, you're more likely to say you wouldn't want to eat that food again, or you didn't enjoy the first taste of it, especially when it's something brand new. That effect is not as pronounced with something like a comfort food or a food that you're familiar with. So having energy and having other things sensorially going on can just generally lift your mood and have you enjoy what you're tasting more. But if you're wanting to study something, say you have a very special bottle of wine or a very expensive bottle of wine that you've never tasted before, you might want to skip the loud, fun, energetic wine bar for a a setting where you might be a little bit more in control of your senses and be able to um, really pick apart that wine or study the different flavors there. And, you know, maybe it might be something you'll never get to try again. So you'll want to really focus in on what you're tasting. Our environments, the tasting environment is not always negative just because it's distracting you a little bit or changing what you taste. For example, if I put you in a pink room, you're much more likely to say whatever you're eating or drinking is sweet and people enjoy sweetness. So that's something that could make your rating higher, but it might not be a great assessment of the wine itself. If you put yourself in a yellow room, you might think it's a little bit more tart or have a little bit more acid. Those are kind of our two colors that are very reliably um, tied to sweetness and sourness. That might make you enjoy it. If you like acidic wines, you might enjoy the wine in the yellow room more, but it might not be an assessment of the wine's taste itself, of its flavor. Yeah, you had some interesting things about color in the book too, about uh, how certain big businesses use certain colors to get people to enjoy their products a little bit more. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, one of my favorites, I don't know if it made it into the book, um, you know, at the editing process so much has to end up on the floor, but um, like scoop shops, like if you look at Ben and Jerry's, all of their logo is like blue and green. And then the freezer aisle, that's giving you 
that coldness factor, it looks very tempting. You know, you want to see something blue in the freezer. But their scoop shop, they use this different logo. They only use it in the scoop shop. It's like this big scoop of strawberry ice cream, like a big pink cone. And then within the scoop shops themselves, there's a lot of pink. And it's like you, when you're sampling those little ice cream bites, you're definitely getting or they're hoping you're getting some of that sweetness just from that like pink environment that they don't really use anywhere else except for in a shop where you're eating their ice cream. Mandy, one of the things when I do a, a tasting, you talk about temperature and flavor. And I want to relate this to, to a wine tasting. And Kim and I always go back and forth on this. When I have a tasting, I usually like to pre-pour the wines. My idea is that when people walk into the room, they are smelling wine, right? The wines are opening up, but I lose temperature. So do you feel it's more important for people to be more, I don't, I don't want to say energetic, but more into the tasting that they come in smelling the aromas of what they're about to taste or that they have it at the ideal temperature? I think something interesting about temperature, so the way it affects what we taste is as things approach our body temperature, we're able to perceive more of their flavor, especially bitterness and sweetness, uh, just the way that our taste receptors work in temperature. So that's one thing. And also as things warm, the volatiles um, in the aroma are much more volatile. They have a little bit more energy because they're warmer. Going back to or high school chemistry class, I guess, you know, they're, they have more energy because of the temperature. So they're moving a lot more. They're a lot easier to get up into your nose and into your mouth to enjoy. So those are two positive things about things warming. I enjoy serving things a little bit cold and then kind of studying the beverage or whatever as it warms up just to see how to your point, how it opens up, how the flavor changes from something that's maybe slightly too cold to room temperature and then above. But um, definitely having that wine in the air and in the environment sets the scene and gets people, even if they don't notice it, it's getting people's brains into a kind of tasting, preparing them to taste wine just by smelling it before they even get it on their palate. So I think that's a great idea. As long as it's not too carbonated, uh, you're not going to lose too much with like a little bit of a raise in temperature. You talked about super taster earlier. Does a super taster have a better smelling ability than a regular taster? No. So those are, those are pretty not... Um, tied, but there is a genetic marker they're kind of closing in on right now for what we could call a super smeller. And it has to do with these proteins that are in the mucus of our nose called odor binding proteins. And if you have a gene where you have a little bit more odor binding proteins naturally, those proteins are what basically connect our brain to the outer world. So the proteins are binding to an odor and those are talking to the olfactory receptor in our brain that's sending the messages of smell up into the brain. So there is potential soon that we'll be able to have a genetic test for super smellers that just have more of these proteins ready to bind with aromas or odors in this case that communicate to the brain what aromas are in the environment around you. So TBD, maybe this time next year, there'll be... <laughs> will know what the gene is for super smelling. But at this point, no, they're very not tied. Super tasting is all about that bitterness. That's really cool science. I hope it doesn't uh, put people off to think like, oh, if I don't have the genetic predisposition for it, that I'm not going to be able to improve. Because I get that question a lot from people like, oh, how did you get to be so good at this? How, how can you smell so many different aromas in a glass of wine? And, when, and I, my answer is always well, practice. 
(laughs) Definitely. And yeah, toward the end of the book, when I'm talking more about taste and our general health and our overall memory and things like that, talking to some of these quality assurance panels, someone who trains a lot of these quality assurance panels over in England, he certifies his tasters on different tasting compounds to make sure they're sensitive to all of them and can identify them. And some of his best tasters are over 60 years old. They're just practiced. They know what they're looking for. They're testing themselves on the compounds all the time. And we have this kind of idea that as you age, you lose these senses, but it's just, they just kind of go, they just atrophy like anything else you're not practicing. Um, And they can, we saw how that olfactory bulb in your brain can expand quite quickly. If you're keeping up on these things and staying interested, trying new things, thinking about what you taste, trying to put words to it, you can hold on to these senses for a lot longer than people realize. Mm. Well, there is so much research on keeping your brain engaged and stuff as we age and that it does help with your mental clarity and, and, and all of those things and, you know, your your health as well. And I think it's really fun that wine tasting can be part of that. But yes. it just be one more thing to do to keep your brain limber. Yes. And I mean, the aroma, to your point, when you said people tell you, you can pick out all these different notes and all these fermented aromas, they have so many different flavors that are naturally occurring because of fermentation. You know, we have all of our fruity, bright esters. We have those phenols that are like our more spicy and peppery aromas and things like that. Of course, our sulfur compounds and all of that is coming in one thing because it's coming from mm-hmm. the wine. So you can smell all these different things and interpret them differently. So I think definitely smelling wine and tasting it is one of those really exciting things as a taster. Years ago, I took one of those DNA tests to see what your taste profile was. Did you see that, Mandy, when it was out? I think it was Um, kind of a sales I remember when you did this. Yeah. (laughs) Was it, they were specifically just tasting what you didn't get any other reports about your DNA? I don't think so. I don't know. It was just, it was, I think it was a scam because they were selling (laughs) wine. So they, they would say, you know, with your DNA, we'll, we'll tell you what type of wines you like and your flavor. Pro- I, I don't know. It was probably a mistake. But I mean, depending on what they were testing for, because there is some cool, like those single genetic studies. There's one for cinnamaldehyde, which is obviously the compound in cinnamon, but people who can pick cinnamon out very easily and enjoy its taste. Like if, if you say, oh yeah, I can smell cinnamon. I always know if a tea has cinnamon in it or something from across the room they tend to like red wines more. And that is specific gene for being able to taste cinnamaldehyde more intensely. So maybe tend to like a red wine. Maybe they were, I don't know how much you were paying. I would say no, I think <laughs> it, was it was a pretty was expensive test. No, no, it was oh, okay. But thing. I would say they probably weren't. There, was there a, are, yeah. There was a time games. like a few years back with, you know, most of the websites that were selling wine, the first thing was let's develop your profile. Do you like black coffee? Do you like sugar? Do you, you know, and then it would give you wines based on what you answer to, to those questions. And I think yeah. that's kind of gone away now, but that was a big thing for a while. I'm fascinated by I remember the thing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're um, more the about podcast the ads. I remember that were like, well, it's like an online wine club and you you tell them what, yeah, you liked. I remember those from right, a couple exactly. years ago. Yeah, that's kind of faded out now, but it was just trying to get people's profile and, and match them up with something to sell them. So it worked. You also, besides the book, you're always writing articles. I follow a lot of stuff that uh, you're putting out there. And one of the things you recently wrote in an article was about wine glasses. And you mentioned that you felt plastic cups were probably the best way to taste. And I have to tell you, when people bring me wine samples, I taste all my wines in a two-ounce shot glass that's plastic. The shot cups, they're disposable. Uh And I always get these looks, but to me... (laughs) 
it really works for me. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about this theory about do we really need a special glass for every wine and beer we're tasting? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what that article was because I wouldn't say it's the best way to taste necessarily, but I would say like when we're judging things like the end um, tasting in mass, there's actually reasons that plastic First of all, it doesn't hold any kind of dishwasher funk or anything like that. It can't get scratched and get a little bacteria in it. It's new. Also, people think judging something like GABF, or we have thousands and thousands of beers, they're like, oh, you should be reusing those glasses, but actually using the heat to heat wash and dry things. Sustainability-wise, as long as you have a good recycler, it's actually not that beneficial in the grand scheme of global warming things. So that's kind of the plastic, I, I just think. There's a lot of positives, especially in a judging environment where you don't want to accidentally misjudge someone's wine or beer because there's a little dishwasher funk in the bottom of the glass or something like that. But when it comes to glasses, the most important thing is that the opening is big enough that you can get all of that aroma. Something like a champagne flute, a lot of the whiskey tasting glasses I really do not think are great, very conducive to tasting because so much of what about 80% of what we consider flavor comes from aroma. So you really want to make sure your nose has good access. A stem is great for keeping hands away, both from that heat uh, that we were talking about. You don't want to warm up what you're tasting too much, but also just like keeping away the dishwasher funk, uh, keeping away hands that can be a little bit smelly. If you have antibacterial, if you have lotion, those are all going to interfere with what you're tasting. So you want to keep that hand as far away from your glass as you can, as far away from your nose as you can. So that's beneficial. But when you start getting into these different, you know, they say, oh, this wine glass will funnel the wine directly to the back of your throat where you'll be able to taste more tannins. And this one is a little wider mouth, so it will get all over your palate for more sweetness. Those things I I, I would say have almost no effect. Um, <laughs> the wine's going to hit your whole palate no matter what. That's what liquid does. And there's no tongue map that's all been debunked. All of our taste receptors inside our taste buds taste everything. So we don't have to worry about that too much. The really cool study that I found, one of like my favorite wine glass studies was they use this thing called a sniffer cam where they can see the ethanol raising off the wine glass. They did a martini glass. They did just a standard rocks glass. And you can really see because of the way that the bowl of a wine glass is shaped, it does collect, the ethanol collects in that bowl on the sides of the glass. So you have a really nice opening in the center mm. of a wine glass where you can get, if you get your nose to that center kind of target, you're going to get a lot less ethanol, which is one of the most important things when it comes to alcohol, you know, ethanol will just overpower everything and you don't want to smell it. So that's very positive martini glass. It just looks like um, waves kind of blowing <laughs> off the top of the glass. There's ethanol all over the place and same thing with a rocks glass. So that bowl shape is something else that's really important when it comes to tasting alcohol. But if you're tasting something like tea or coffee, you just need a nice wide opening and hopefully it's a little bit of a tall glass where your hand isn't right in your face. That's really cool. I recently saw an interview you did and you talked about tasting when on vacation. I thought you gave a great mm -hmm. tip about when you go away to buy something. If you say you go to Italy, you buy a wine that you didn't taste when you were there and then you taste that when you come back. One of the questions I get all the time is people say, when I'm in Italy, I tasted wine, I never got a headache. But when I drink them here, I have a headache. How do you explain, is that all environment when people are tasting? I mean, I always say you're on vacation. So yeah, everything's <laughs> tasting great, right? I mean, and you kind of were hinting that about when you're away, how things, you're creating these memories and 
things will taste better, correct? Is that yes? And I, something that we don't notice when we're away, you know, you think, oh, I'm out of my routine. I'm enjoying the beach. That's why I remember my vacation so much, and I feel so much happier. But you're also taking your body, so our sense organs are there to really acclimate to our environment and sense threats, right? So if it was way back when we were, like I said, living in the fields, you want to just not smell your environment at all. You want to be totally acclimated to the earth and grasses around you. So the minute a predator sweat enters your sense, like you start to smell it, you're alerted and you notice that difference. So that's the same with our homes, right? You're totally acclimated to your detergent, whatever cleaning you use to clean your um, kitchen, the way that your trash always smells, like all of these things you're totally acclimated to, you're not noticing them. All of a sudden you're in a hotel that has whatever scent they're pumping into the rooms, whatever detergent they use that isn't the same as yours. And your whole existence is kind of heightened. Your body realizes I'm in this new environment. I'm taking in all these senses. I've never smelled this scent before. Is it good or is it bad? Do I love it? I think I love it because I'm enjoying wine while I'm smelling it. And it's, it's the best times I've had recently. So your, your body's kind of in this like heightened state of taking everything in and recognizing it. So if you take that wine in this like environment that totally has you out of your element, you're learning all these things, you're smiling, you're laughing with your friends, and then you put it in that environment where you're totally used to everything. It's back to your old detergent, your old hand soap, everything that your body is used to. It's just going to taste differently because you're so much more acclimated, even if it's still delicious, it's just going to be a different experience because you're picking up on those compounds completely differently than you are when you're taking everything in, in your environment. So I always suggest people, like if you go to a winery and you loved the wine, you had the best time in Italy, and hopefully you took some time to really talk about what you were actually tasting instead of saying, oh, this is really good. Ask the person who you were tasting wine with if they can sell you a bottle of something similar to what you liked, but not exactly the same. Because then when you get home and taste it, you don't have this expectation and you're not disappointed. You're tasting something new. So it's going to be a new experience, but it's still from that winery you love and you know it's still high quality. Same things with things like cheeses or even like little desserts and cookies and things that you take home from different places. I think looking forward to trying something new and not having that expectation of the memory of how wonderful it was, you won't end up disappointed you'll just extend your vacation a little bit. That's a great tip. Yeah, I love that advice. One of the things we always talk about, I, I always have so many questions for you, Mandy, but um, <laughs> this is going to be my last kind of question. One of the things we always tell our listeners to, to always taste, taste, taste to, you know, there's so much out there in the wine world. How do you tell people, well, I'm going to ask my beer question now, <laughs> the guy who's drinking Bud Light all the time, I'll, and then I'll relate it to wine, but someone's drinking Bud Light all the time. How do you tell them that person to develop a palate, how to, to try different things. How do you get someone like that who's stuck on a, a brand for beer or wine? How do you get them motivated to taste other things? Um, good question. So I think, I mean, it could be hard if someone's really stuck on Bud Light and they're like, this is all I drink or whatever. If they're really not open to trying anything new, just even as food or anything, I think those people can be difficult to get to it, um, introduce to the joy that is tasting. But if someone's kind of open to it, I really think a fun way to do it is ordering for each other on a menu. So if you're going out with someone and having dinner or going to a bar or something, let the other person order your first round and vice versa and don't tell each other what they are. So if you're going out with someone who always drinks Bud Light, maybe I just get them like a, a Goose Island wheat or something, <laughs> like something that's just slightly different. It's not going to overpower them because I know them, I know what they like. So we're just going to try something slightly new and see, oh, what? It, how does it taste different? Do you like it? Something that like I always used to say I didn't like Prosecco and I have been proven wrong because when someone ordered me sparkling wine, I was like, oh, this is really great. It's kind of like a dry cava. 
and it was Prosecco. So I, I was wrong. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, yeah, when you go out with a friend who kind of knows your taste, they don't want to ruin your night by ordering something you won't like. But just seeing if you can pick apart that drink or appetizer or something. But a drink's always fun, especially cocktails that have multiple elements where you can kind of taste different flavors. I think it's a great way to be in the care of your friend who's not going to ruin your night. Try something new. You're with someone you're comfortable with. And the worst thing that happens is the person hates it and won't, won't drink it. And then you just you get to drink the drink and order it. And they can order whatever else. That's I'm going to do that to my friends. I'm really going to do that. <laughs> it's so fun because sometimes they yeah, trust like, me I'll... to pick things for them, though. <laughs> Yeah, but it's so great because they just you get something put in front of you, and you know we all are practice tasters, and you still learn something new, and you're like, oh, I can't believe that was maple was in a mm -hmm. drink recently that someone ordered me, and I was like, I could not taste that maple at all. I would have never known. So yeah, it's a fun little exercise yeah. and a good way to bond with people too, and force them to talk about flavor. <laughs> well, thank you, Mandy. I appreciate it. And, yeah. um, the book was excellent. I encourage all our listeners to put it on their uh, list or give it as a gift. It's called How to. Taste, a guide to discovering flavor and savoring life. Really nice read. So I highly recommend it. Mandy, thank you very much. Yeah, this was so great. It's so fun yeah. to talk to other people who are excited about tasting. Yeah, thank you for being on the show. Great. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We have your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. Today, we had special guest, Mandy Neglich. You can find her on howtotastebook.com. It's her website for her book. We talked about how to taste a guide to discovering flavor and savoring life. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our program is sponsored by Franklin Public Radio. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.